good morning, Community Church. Again, it's nice to be here once again and with you guys and fellowshipping again. Uh, today, we will be, we'll be tackling a hard thing this morning. Uh, we'll be in Galatians chapter 1 uh, in the first 10 verses of that. Galatians 1 verses 1 through 10. And we'll be, we'll, we will be looking at the phenomenon of justification by faith. It, we'll only be able to touch the surface of this, this uh, unfortunately, but we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> I, I say hard, though, because without the Holy Spirit working in the life of someone, justification by faith is a difficult, dare I say, impossible truth to understand in our human, flesh-driven, finite minds, you know, much less live it out. It, but... Justification by faith is so necessary for our salvation. The book of Galatians is one of the Apostle Paul's finest works. And in it, he addresses this issue of justification by faith, which means that faith in Christ's work on the cross is the only thing that saves us. He logically and methodically explains that we shouldn't try to earn our salvation because, frankly, we can't. Galatians is both a declaration of independence from the law and a declaration of dependence upon God's saving work. And since his audience is Jewish, Paul also references the Old Testament scriptures a lot to prove that the law could not save, nor was it designed to save. He does this because the Jews turned the gospel of Christ, which was good, into something which was bad, which is legalism. And this lie of legalism still haunts us to this day. And when we add or take away from God's perfect saving work on the cross, we start to rely on a formula, quote unquote, or a step-by-step plan, which never works. And I'll be honest with you, though, because sometimes it's hard to really understand that. It's hard to believe sometimes that nothing is required of me for my salvation, I'll admit that I'm someone who has a tendency to beat myself up, especially when I know I did something wrong or made a mistake, right? I, I think about it. And, and then because of that, there's this temptation to kind of fix it, or at least do my best to fix it, to erase it somehow. And there have been times when I've sinned that I feel like I need to pray harder or, I don't know, whatever, you know, do something to, again, to, to cancel it out. But that's a false mentality. That is a lie originating from the pit of hell. Be encouraged that God has done it all. There is nothing you need to do. That is enough. All that is required of us is a committed heart and obedience to our Lord, dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is he who condescended to our level. We cannot rise to his. A word of caution, though. Galatians teaches us about our freedom in Christ and the gift that that is. So let us not mistake this gift as if it were a right. What do I mean by that? Well, let's not use God's grace and his free gift of salvation as like a get-out-of-jail-free card. That is irresponsible and foolish. To use his grace as a stumbling block for others because we have freedom goes against what his grace was meant for in the first place. And using that so-called freedom to continue in sin shows arrogance 
and a false understanding of his grace. We need to understand that God's grace cleanses us from our sin. It is not, I repeat, it is not an excuse to keep sinning. So before we begin, let us pray once again that that God would open our hearts to hear. Lord, we thank you for this uh, day. I pray that uh, as we go through uh, the first 10 chapters of Galatians 1, that you would open our hearts to hear what it is that you want us to learn. I pray that uh, you would give me the words to speak, and uh, again, that you would be here in our midst as we try to uh, understand and and as we look into uh, justification by faith. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verses 1 through 2 of Galatians 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. All right, so that's a mouthful. Paul here is beginning Galatians in his typical Pauline greeting. But in this book, it is interesting to take note of how he writes. Since he is writing concerning justification by faith, he starts his discourse swinging, if you will. He begins that way in this book because he desires to emphasize a point. He desires to emphasize that he is an apostle because of Jesus Christ and no other. He says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Right? There were men who would follow Paul around and slander him, spreading false accusations about him in order to undermine his credibility and authority as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. They basically were saying that he couldn't be trusted. And this would happen everywhere he goes. Well, since these men were questioning Paul's credentials, he makes it perfectly clear who called him into this ministry and that he had no say in the matter. If he is going to admonish the Galatian believers about their erring ways, he needs to clarify who he is, how, why he has authority, and why he is qualified to speak so that he has a platform with which to clarify the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle and a messenger because God said so. God chose him, and that is enough. He didn't go to seminary to become an apostle, nor did any mere man, quote, give him that title or position, right? We see this play out in the Damascus Road encounter in Acts 9. The basis of his credibility was so important that Paul spent the first two chapters of Galatians defending himself and his position as a legitimate and divinely inspired apostle. In verse 2, he includes the brethren, which is important because this is a statement of unity. Paul was not a lone wolf. The body of Christ encompassed many people over a large geographic area. And Paul understood this, and so his statement allows for three things. One, he is including the brethren as taking part in his ministry. Two, it allows the Galatian church to be encouraged because there are others who share the same faith. At least the same faith that Paul taught them at first. And three, it also cemented his position as a true apostle of Jesus Christ because the brethren bore witness to his calling. So not only did Jesus himself appoint Paul as an apostle, but countless others agreed with his particular calling in ministry. Therefore, Paul can be trusted. 
in verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's grace was so important in Galatians, so important to Paul in this message that he sandwiches his manifesto on justification by faith with God's grace. What do I mean by that? Well, he starts off here in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God. And then in Galatians 6, 8, at the end of Galatians, he ends with, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Right, but if you think about Paul's greeting in verse 3, when he puts grace ahead of peace, logically it makes sense. When his grace covers us, we experience peace because grace shows us that we are redeemed. When we get in trouble or do something wrong, there are consequences. I think of Jesus' parable in Luke 7, where he tells us of the two creditors who owed money, where one more than the other. Their master forgave both of their debts, and naturally the one who owed more loved him more. And the same here is true in Galatians 1 verses 3. The knowledge of undeserved grace brings an overwhelming sense of peace. The Galatians forgot about the grace of God. They forgot that he did it all, and there was no amount of good works that could earn them God's favor or his peace. Why do we have peace? Well, verse 4 tells us. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So we have peace because Jesus took our place. Do you, do you see what Paul is telling us here? We don't need to strive for our salvation because we have the assurance that our salvation has been purchased by him. It's guaranteed. God guarantees it himself. When Paul says, who gave himself for our sins, what he is saying is that God completely and willingly gave himself for us. That's, that's how the Greek writes it, that he completely and willingly gave himself for us. He was dedicated to doing it, and he was not going to back down from it. In fact, he knew he would do it before the foundations of the world, as the Apostle John tells us in Revelations 13.8. This just means that God, in his deity and sovereignty, knew that sin would enter the world he would create and that he would ultimately die for mankind's redemption. So nothing takes him by surprise, not even a sin that may take us by surprise. So hopefully here you're beginning to see that there is absolutely no reason to feel like we need to do something to earn God's favor. But like I said before, this in our human nature is understandably hard to fathom at times. Right, earlier I told you how I struggled to, with the temptation to fix myself. And I think I did this for two reasons. One, because I felt like if I just accepted his grace, then I would be trampling on his mercies. Right? In, in other words, it kind of felt too good to be true. And the second reason I f is that I felt like I needed to get on God's good side again. I had to ask for forgiveness and then do something else in order to have an empty slate again, whether that meant pray a little bit harder or whatever, you, know, you name it. But the truth of the matter is that that could not be farther from the truth. So let's get this one thing straight. And listen carefully to this. Accepting God's grace and forgiveness without doing extra stuff, 
is not trampling upon the grace of God unless you keep practicing that same sin or your attitude is one of ingratitude. That's a mouthful, so I'll repeat that again. Accepting his grace and forgiveness without doing extra stuff is not trampling upon the grace of God unless you keep practicing that same sin or your attitude is one of ingratitude. Right? If you're truly grateful and thankful for his saving work, you will accept his grace and forgiveness and rest confident in the fact that it is only his work that saves you, that you are truly forgiven. Your slate is clean. Your deep appreciation will then reveal itself in your conduct. You will live in grace. You will live in mercy because you know you have it. You will hate sin and anything that goes against God and desire to follow after him. You will repent when you mess up and you will keep following God, right? You'll get back up and keep going. Well, one might ask, why would God do that? Why would he want to save sinners? You know, it, it seems like a waste of time and energy. I, I think that would be a legitimate question. You know, why would God want to save me? Well, Paul tells us why. What does the last half of verse 4 say? It says that he might deliver us from this present evil age. So God loved us so much that he desired to deliver us from sin and the fate of being separated from him for all eternity. Think about that. God loved us so much that he wanted, he, he, he wanted to save us from sin. So he died on the cross to do that. I mean, if you really think about that, that's mind-blowing, that God would do that for me, for us, right? The late Chuck Smith noted that this deliverance mentioned by Paul has two sides. He says, when I believe in Jesus Christ, I am delivered from the hold that the world has on me. One of these days, Jesus is going to deliver me out of the world. Right now, he's delivering me in the world. And this verse has justification and sanctification written all over it. Now, those are just some fancy words, but I'll explain. So when we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts, we are immediately considered justified through his blood that was spilled on the cross. Now we are delivered from sin's enticement and therefore the automatic draw towards sin. In other words, we don't have to give in every time sin comes knocking at our door now. And this is called sanctification, and it's a lifetime process. Sanctification just means that God is making us more like him each and every day. We're not going to be him. We won't be like him. We're not going to be gods, but he's making us more into his image. Right? He's making us more like him. We are still sinners and will not be sinless this side of eternity. But we now have the ability to sin less each day. And the second way we're being delivered from this present evil age is by being physically removed from it when we live with Jesus in paradise. When he comes back, he will make all things new. We will leave this earth and these fallen bodies and dwell with him in his presence in heaven. Just like my grandmother, she beat me to it. And as Paul finishes verse 4, he, we learn that this is the will of our God and Father. This was God's desire all along. Hell was not created for man. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. 
God's desire is for man who was created in his image to live and dwell with him forever, not be tormented in hell. But because we sinned, there needed to be a punishment for our sins. There's consequences. So God took our punishment. To God be the glory. Paul reiterates this statement of praise in verse 5 when he says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I believe this is an appropriate time to stop and give praise and thanks to God uh, for taking what was supposed to be ours, for taking the punishment that was supposed to be ours, the fate of eternal damnation, and taking it upon himself, clothing us in his forgiveness. This is kind of the, the time we're entering the Easter season where we reflect on what God did on the cross and how he rose from the dead to save us from our sins. And the cross was a gruesome, gruesome experience. It was a gruesome death. I don't know if any words can really describe just how bad it really was, but that's what he took for you and for me. Thank God. (laughs) Only a sinner who sees his sin will understand the depth of love and grace shown to him by our good and loving Father. Let us give him the glory of of our salvation, for he alone deserves it. Everything that God does is for his glory and his alone. Again, someone might take exception to this, though, and accuse God of being an egomaniac. Why does God want me to worship him only? That doesn't sound like a loving God, they might say. Well, I, however, see just the opposite. I see glorifying him as a privilege and a gift. If someone asked me that, I would turn around and ask them, why would God, who is the sovereign of the universe, who doesn't need my help, who doesn't need my praise, doesn't need my affirmation, desire that I, of all his created works, should worship him? Why does God desire that I worship him? Could it be that glorifying God is the safest and most purpose-driven life that anybody could ever have? And when you get to thinking about it, comparatively speaking, we're like atoms in the expanse of the universe, right? This planet is tiny. The solar system is tiny. The more you zoom out, the smaller our neck of the woods gets. I wish I I was going to show a picture that shows the comparative size of planets and stars. You know, Earth and and, uh, Venus are relatively similar. And then you zoom out. Earth looks real tiny compared to Jupiter. And then you keep zooming out. Now Jupiter is this tiny little ball, and here's the sun. But then you just keep zooming out, and pretty soon the sun is this little tiny speck, and there's a star that's this big compared to the little tiny speck of our sun, right? What is all, what's my point in all this? Well, the sun is nearly 109 times larger than the Earth. That means that approximately 1.3 million Earths could fit into the sun if it were hollow. But it gets better because there are stars out there that are just massive. They put the sun to shame. <coughs> Betelgeuse, for example, is about 764 times the size of our sun. But they get even bigger than that. So the point of all this is that if God were to pick his best creation to worship him, surely it'd be Betelgeuse. And that thing is massive. But it's not. We are his most prized possession. Out of all the things he created, we are his most prized possession. 
The primary purpose in our salvation is to make much of him. He made much of us by loving us to death, literally. We then make much of him because of his love. And why not? Why wouldn't we do that? Who am I to say otherwise or take exception to what God's will is? I'm just amazed that he took notice of me and desired to die on the cross for my sin when I, in light of all that I've done and in light of all that he has made, do not compare to his mightiest or largest or most beautiful piece of creation. No one can suppress the glory and praise that they experience when God's love is revealed. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And hopefully after all this, you, you can start to grasp the wonderful love that God has for you. So Paul ends this first part strongly with an amen. Right? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I see this kind of like a selah in the Psalms where we're called to think about it. So let's do that. Let's pause and consider real quick what we've learned so far. Paul's authority came from God himself, and all the brethren bore witness to his calling. So we can trust Paul what he says. From here on out, we can trust what he's about to tell us. Salvation does not come from human works, because nothing we do is worthy to be counted as sufficient to bridge the gap, so to speak, between God and man. It is only through Christ's saving work on the cross that we are saved. As Ephesians 2.8 reminds us, for, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this is why we can safely say that there is only one way to salvation. And this is exactly what Paul will talk about in his next section of Galatians 1. In verses 6 through 10, Paul addresses the fact that there is only one God, and one gospel, and anything else that claims to be the gospel is false. Keep this in mind as we go through this section, because it is relevant to us today. The church in America has become invaded and infiltrated by a plethora of false gospels. Some are obvious and others are not. And this is why it is vitally important for us as Christians to know exactly what the Bible says. We need to know exactly what it teaches so that we can boldly confront the lies head-on and be confident in our faith. So let's look at verse 6. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So notice that at the end of verse 6, Paul calls what they chose to follow a different gospel. In the Greek, the word different that Paul used means different in kind or class. So even though Paul says different gospel, he's not likening it to the actual gospel. He's actually being sarcastic. Right? And in fact, there's no good news about this different gospel. Paul had given them the truth, the real good news, and they left that for a counterfeit. This false doctrine that they received was salvation through good works, of which Paul spent the first five verses challenging. So what they were being taught was, yeah, all that Paul's saying is good, but you also need to be circumcised, right? You need to do this as well as what God did. It is amazing to read that the Galatians decided to choose man's creation, which is the law and tradition, over man's creator, who is grace and mercy. 
They chose to be in bondage instead of be free. But notice Paul's tone. He is amazed and surprised that they would turn so quickly to something else. Warren Wiersbe shares keen insight into the behavior of the Galatians. He says the Galatian believers were not simply changing religions or changing churches, but were actually abandoning the very grace of God. And to make matters worse, they were deserting the very God of grace. But there's a difference between being deceived and swept away by a false doctrine after a long period of time and being deceived and swept away by a false doctrine minutes after hearing the truth. But both are still unfortunate and tragic. I don't know how quickly it took for the Galatians to turn away, but apparently it was pretty quick based upon Paul's rebuke. We no doubt hear and read of the sorrow and disappointment in Paul's words, yet it is done in love. He is stern and forthright, in, but his intentions are to correct and instruct, not to tear down. And this is something we as Christians should learn how to do. It's too easy to jump out at someone and correct them. It's another to correct them in love. This skill is hard to master as our inclination is to lash out, but there is hope. The Holy Spirit working in and through us, convicting us, gives us hope that we can, like Paul, rebuke in love. Paul then moves on from rebuking the Galatians to rebuking the false prophets, and he has strong words for the wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Verse 7, it says, Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So we learn three things about false teachings and teachers from verse 7. They are one, not the gospel, because Paul says, which is not another. Two, it is nothing but trouble, but there are some who trouble you. And lastly, three, false teachings are a direct attack against the word of God, right? Because Paul says they pervert the gospel of Christ. In today's day and age, it's really easy to muddle the truth. You may have heard this, but nowadays it is not uncommon to hear someone declare my truth or your truth, right, as if the truth is relative to the speaker. Nowadays, society's truth declares what is right and what is wrong. So when that happens, usually right is wrong and wrong is right. The standard with which we base this is on our own desires and feelings and ambitions. So it's flaky. This is foolishness. The truth is the truth, regardless of how you feel. God's word is God's word, period. There is no changing it, and there is no other gospel. If this offends you, then that is proof that God's word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, as Hebrews 4.12 puts it. Anything short of God's holy word is a lie from the pit of hell and should not be given the time of day. The standards are high for a reason. So false doctrines are just that. False. Secondly, it brings nothing but trouble. False doctrines do not bring us closer to God because they cause us to spiral down faster and faster and faster into sin than when we had first begun. It tears us away from the loving arms of our sweet and loving God. False doctrines take us further away from Christ, simply put. But they also bring trouble in one of two ways. 
For some of us, false doctrines add pressure and guilt to our lives, that it becomes in a way a kind of sadistic comforter. After all, I'm so weighed down and burdened, but where else can I go? Can't do anything about it, right? I can't go to God because I'm so messed up, and I, I need to get my act together before even bringing up the courage and audacity to come to him, but I can't, so here I am. On the other hand, false doctrines can appear friendly and appeal to our flesh. Doctrines like the prosperity gospel, or the self-help gospel, or nowadays the social justice gospel, and the like make us feel good about ourselves and what we're doing, but we're no closer to God than when we first begun. The only difference is that in the first example, you die a tormented sinner separated from God. In the second example, you die a, quote, satisfied and feel-good sinner, but you're still separated from God. So false doctrines bring nothing but trouble. And lastly, they're a blatant perversion and twisting of the truth. And this is where false teachings can appear good on the surface, but when looked into are actually a distortion of the truth. This is an offense against God. Imagine telling a friend something and they go and tell their friend what you said, only this time they add or take away what you said. And they put words in your mouth. How would you feel about that? Well, false doctrines are promoted by tricksters and cunning men who obviously do not have the Spirit of God working in their lives. What is interesting is how Paul wrote this. He is scolding the Galatian church, rather harshly, I might add, but yet he also criticizes the false teachers in a way that almost pities the believers. It's almost like he says, you were wrong to believe these false teachers. You were wrong to go astray. You were wrong to commit yourself to a different gospel in so soon. But I can understand that you did, seeing as they were very smart and very cunning. Again, this is why it's important for us as Christians to really know our Bible. If something doesn't seem right, perhaps it is the Holy Spirit warning you that there's danger ahead. So moving on, we get to verses 8 and 9, which reads, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. This is a fascinating passage. What Paul did here in verses 8 and 9 is known as an anathema in the Greek. And this means that Paul literally cursed anyone or anything that would try to subvert the word of God. This was a serious curse of the strongest and highest degree. You may be asking yourself, you know, I thought we were supposed to correct people in love. What, why, why is he doing this? Well, we should correct people in love. But let's look at the context here. Paul here was trying to show the Galatian church that a new gospel, quote, is not really gospel at all. It was a direct attack against God's holy and unadulterated words. This, however, does not give us permission to, to declare anathemas to people whom we disagree with or are found to be at fault for something. Right. Any offense committed on the horizontal plane, between, meaning between me and you, is minor and not deserving of a curse. Any correction done within this setting is what must be done in love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all you do be done with love. 
And again, in 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. So the curse that Paul pronounced is reserved for people who disrupt the vertical plane, meaning people's relationship with God, by creating their own way to salvation, a different road to heaven. For this, God shows no tolerance, because those people lead other people astray, and that is a serious crime. In Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, the Apostle John gives us a warning. He says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, to be fair... John was specifically talking about tampering with the book of Revelation. But we can also understand it to mean the scriptures in general, because God elsewhere gives warning. Take, for example, Deuteronomy 12.32. Here God says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So yes, we're supposed to correct in love, but when it comes to creating a new road to heaven... That deserves a more serious reprimand because of the seriousness of the crime. I think of Mormonism here in verses, from verses 8 through 9, right? Because Paul said, if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel, let him be accursed. And either Paul was ahead of his time or heresies were popping up even then about being given a new revelation from the spiritual realm. Mormonism started out with Joseph Smith seeing a vision from God the Father and Jesus Christ, who he sees as two separate people, by the way, which should already be a red flag, who basically tell him that all Christian denominations are following a lie. Then, a couple of years later, he has a vision of an angel named Moroni, who tells him of a book that contains the true gospel. So hopefully you can see that this has all the signs of a false gospel. One last thing, though, on this passage Paul includes himself in this curse. And to me, that's very interesting. What we learn from this is twofold. One, it is important for us to handle God's word correctly. And two, we must hold our pastors and our teachers and each other accountable. The truth is too important for us to fit into whatever interpretation we want it to fit in. Whatever we want it to say or you know, to take some random preacher's word for it. We are all human and therefore prone to make mistakes. Let us be like the Bereans in Acts 17 and check the word of God for ourselves at all times. Always compare what you hear to the pure and true word of God to see if it lines up. And this is Pastor Shea and I's desire for everyone is that you really know your Bible and keep us accountable. Check us. If something doesn't sound right, let us know. Right? Don't take our word for it. Look for yourself. You have a Bible in your hands for a reason. <laughs> you can look at it, right? So now we get to verse 10. It says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So in light of all that we talked about, Paul sums up the first 10 verses well. Paul's only goal as a devoted Christian was that Christ be glorified and that his life be pleasing to God. And this is why he cared so much for the spiritual welfare of the Galatians 
and that they were being led astray. He brought the gospel to them, so he felt a responsibility to correct them when he saw them leaving the straight and narrow. And he could care less about what anybody else thought. And this, this is convicting to me because in looking at my own life, I found myself wanting the praise of men. I've, I've desired the praise of men sometimes and worried that I don't have it. This was, it manifested itself a lot when I was in the military because that's, that's that kind of culture. But when God is first in your life, everything else will fall into place. So Paul here basically sums up his portion of his letter by reminding the Galatians that everything he is doing is because he desires to please God, and he exhorts them to have the same mindset. Paul did not choose to be an apostle to be well-liked. He didn't choose a minister's lifestyle because it sounded glamorous or easy. He didn't even choose it at all. He was chosen to be an apostle for God's glory, and he ran with it. He accepted it, and he loved it. He even says that if he was trying to please men, he wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. So in other words, he wouldn't be taking the time to write the Galatian believers a letter about their erring ways if he was seeking the praise of men. Why would you do that? How important it is for us as Christians to please God rather than man. I understand that this can be difficult sometimes because of our flesh, but just like Paul has been exhorting the Galatians, we have power over sin because of God's sacrifice and his grace, which places his righteousness and his power in us. Now we have a choice. We have been justified and redeemed by Christ's death on the cross. Do we have the faith to believe that only he has purchased our salvation? Or do we resort to placing our trust in ourselves or other people or methods? Will we seek the eternal glory of God or the temporary praise of man? Will we try to earn unearned salvation or live in the freedom of undeserved grace? Let us live for God and in his grace, which frees us from the grip of sin and shame. Let us live in love. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the love that you've shown us, the mercy that you give us, when we really think about your work on the cross and your saving work, Lord, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it sounds too good to be true, but it is. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for the love that you've given to us, for condescending down to our level, for choosing us, for choosing me. You could have chosen many other mighty, powerful, graceful things in your creation, but you didn't. You chose to give me grace and mercy and love. And I thank you for that, Lord. I pray that we could live in that grace, that you could set us free from the bondage of sin and death, and that we would live in your, in your grace and your mercy and your freedom, and that we could give that and show that grace and that mercy and freedom to others so that they can be set free from their, their addictions, their bondages. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And... Um, I pray that you would continue to cover us in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.